chapter 24, verse 1 through 12. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this, so they rushed back from the tomb to tell this, tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran back to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Well, good morning and happy Easter. It is great to have you with us this morning. Um, I hope, oh, if you're new with us, my name is Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. And, and I hope you could read the, the, the headings um, with the video. You're probably aware of the, the bombings that took place in Egypt on Palm Sunday of some, uh, a couple of churches that left several people dead, many more wounded. And this video was an interview with the widow of one of the men who was killed in the bombings. And it's remarkable to both kind of read what she's saying and also watch the reaction of the, the news anchor. This is just a kind of a, a news anchor on Egyptian television who's reporting about this widow and, and their family and how they're responding. And it's striking, right, because he's, he's moved by her forgiveness, but he immediately says, you know, nobody loves Egypt like these people. He, he points immediately to this deep sense of nationalism that must compel them to show this kind of forgiveness. But if you look at her words, when I say look, if you listen, but most of us probably don't speak Egyptian. So if you look at the words as they're translated, where is it coming from? It's coming from this, this deep, remarkable sense of hope that her husband, while he's dead, is still alive. That there's something greater than death, that there's a hope deep within her that causes her to be compelled to this kind of weird, hard-to-understand love. That's her motivation. Not her commitment to the nation of Egypt, but her hope in resurrection. And of course, this morning on Easter Sunday, this is what we're reflecting on. This is what we're celebrating, the resurrection of Jesus. And we're, we've been in a series that we're calling Revolutionary Jesus, where we're looking at the teachings, the life, the teachings, and then the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the revolutionary implications that these things have in our lives. And Easter Sunday, while for most of us, it's kind of become a tribute, like we've made it this kind of kid-centric holiday, which is cool, 
you know, we did the Easter baskets this morning, and, and our kids hunted them and found the candy and the eggs, and, and they ate them. Um, you know, they had Cadbury Easter eggs for breakfast. We're, we're, you know, this is that one day a year when you're like, sure, you can feel sick at 10. That's fine. Um, right? Like, we do that. It's great. It's fun. It's wonderful. But Easter has become this very childlike, childish holiday, right? There's bunnies, and there's colorful eggs, and you see some under your chairs, and we'll talk about that in a minute, right? But there's all these things that make us feel like this is a great holiday for the kids. But if we look at how the origins of Easter, as we look at the the resurrection of Jesus, it's one of the most revolutionary events to ever happen. And if we actually come to believe it, then it changes the way in which we live we begin to live in a way that can only be described as revolutionary. Hopefully you'll see what I mean as we go through this this morning. So I want to look um, at this passage that Prasadi read for us. Um, in, this, in, in Luke's text, we've been going through Luke. Luke is the, the third gospel that we come to in the New Testament, uh, one of the, the third out of four biographies of Jesus. And we've been looking at how Luke follows the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Luke... He, he has a special place in his heart, you can tell in his writings, for those who are marginalized, for those who don't tend to be in the center of Jewish society, as he tells the story. He often points to these people. And here, he has a special emphasis on, on the women. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to look at kind of how these early followers would have experienced the resurrection. One thing that's really clear is that nobody had any idea this was coming. Nobody expected that this is where everything was going to end up. Sure, Jesus made allusions to his resurrection all throughout his teaching, sometimes more than allusions. Sometimes he specifically talked about it. For example, earlier in Luke's gospel, we actually see the angels reference it here. They talk about, you remember when Jesus said this thing? Well, it's earlier in Luke's gospel. It's in Luke chapter 18. Um, Jesus says this, All the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. They will flog him and whip him. I'm sorry, they will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them. So he was very clear, right? Like, not only is he going to die, he's going to be whipped, flogged publicly, die, and then rise again. But it was hidden from them. Now, we don't know what exactly that means. Like, was, did Jesus zap them with some kind of supernatural mind fog that made it impossible for them to comprehend the words that he was saying? Maybe. Probably not. Probably it was more like they already knew in their head. They knew what the Messiah was going to be. They knew what this leader, this, this ruler who was going to come and free them from Rome, they knew what to expect. This was going to be a military victory. This was going to be someone who would come and who would lead an army against Rome and overthrow them and set up a kingdom in Israel that would make Israel kind of the center of the known world. This is what they were expecting. And so when Jesus talked about his death and resurrection, they just could, it, it couldn't compute. I'm sure you've had this experience with people. Like, I was trying to think about a time when, when something like this happened to me, and I've probably done this to many people. But one time I can remember is I was talking to someone about, it was early on in my marriage, and I was learning a lot about what it's like to be in a, a farming family. Uh, my, my wife's family, they're farmers, and I had never experienced that. The, the closest I had gotten to farming were those times when like, the Sesame Street characters would visit farms. Um, so that's kind of what I knew. 
Um, and so I was learning a lot being married to Tracy and, and learning about her family's experience, learning a lot of the amazing things and also a lot of the challenges that face farmers, a lot how hard, how difficult it was to be a farmer. And I remember I was telling this to someone. I don't remember who it was. It's probably better. Um, but I was telling them all about this, and they were just looking at me like they had no idea what I was talking about. And finally, we got to a point where they're like, no, wait, but farmers are rich, right? Like, they, they have all of this land, they have this, all this equipment, like, farmers have money. I was like, have you met any farmers? Like, have, have, have you, like, like, in their head, they already knew. They had a, a particular idea of what a farmer was. And so when I talked about the struggles that they faced, how difficult things were, it just didn't compute because they already knew in their head what that was. And we do this all the time, right? We have preconceived ideas that make it difficult for us to hear what's actually being said, for us to, to actually experience what's true because we can't get past our own idea of what it is. Married couples face this all the time, right? Like she says something and you're thinking something else or he says something and you're thinking something else and you're not actually hearing the other person. You're just hearing what you're telling yourself the other person is saying. And it's only until you get a third person who sits down and they're like, yeah, you, you guys aren't listening to each other. That it, you actually start to hopefully stop and go, oh, so that voice in my head is not you, right? Like, we do this all the time. And I think this is what's happening with the disciples. They're going, we already know what this means. So when Jesus says, well, so I'm going to die and I'm going to be risen again, I'm going to rise again, they're thinking, oh, he's speaking in metaphors. Like, he must be talking about this kind of, this time, the, the army that he raises up is going to be defeated, it's going to be like a death, but then we will rise again and defeat the, it's going to be great. So, okay, yes death and resurrection, right? Like, they just couldn't wrap their heads around it because th this wasn't their expectation. This wasn't what they thought was going to happen. And so when, when it actually happens, when the thing that Jesus said was going to happen happens, they're shocked. They're taken aback. And, and they, most of them, abandon ship. They abandon Jesus. Except for one key demographic. The women. The women stick with Jesus to the end. In Luke 8, as I said, Luke kind of mentions these women. He mentions lots of different people who are kind of on the margins, and, and women is a key group he focuses on. He mentions them again in, in Luke 8, early on in his biography. He says this, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. So in a culture that virtually gave women no social value, right, that really their value was their ability to bear children, and manage a household. So outside of that, women had no social standing, no status. They could not be, they, they almost never were disciples of rabbis. They, they were almost never invited to be students of rabbis. And here we see this group of women around Jesus, who he's inviting to follow with him, almost like the disciples. But it's not just in his ministry that we see them hanging around. 
Um, we also see them when Jesus dies on the cross. While most of his closest disciples have, again, abandoned ship, they've kind of retreated out of fear, trying to protect themselves. Luke notes that these women were among a small group of friends who stood at a distance watching as Jesus died. And then after Jesus' body is removed from the cross and he's taken to be buried, it's the women that Luke notes followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed, then went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. These women stuck with Jesus to the bitter end. They were there, present, and Luke records the whole thing for us. But it's not like they figured it out. It's not like they kind of knew what was going on, even though the the male disciples had no clue what was going on. Of course, we see the angel say, like, why are you looking for the dead among the living? It's not like they figured it out, but they're there. And then we get this key point that Luke shows us. And, And if we don't have the cultural lens to see it, we miss it, right? These women tell everyone else about Jesus' resurrection. Now, again, we might see that as a duh Like, what else would you do if you came to find someone you assumed was dead and discovered they were not? You would probably go tell people, right? But this is incredibly significant. Um, Andreas Kustenberger and Justin Taylor, uh, some researchers, wrote an article in, in, uh, in Christianity Today, which is kind of a popular Christian magazine, and they were talking about the presence of these women at this scene, and particularly their witness of Jesus' resurrection. They said this, in the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. Josephus, who was an early ancient Jewish historian, Josephus said that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Celsus, the second century critic of Christianity, mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged resurrection witness, referring to her as a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. So God chooses to reveal the most astounding event in human history, the resurrection of Christ, to those who would be trusted least with it. Seems a little odd, right? Like, wouldn't you want to entrust that to the people who culturally would have the most social standing, the most kind of respectability among the people who would hear? Because we see how confusing this all gets, right? Like, they come to to the disciples, and they tell them what's going on. Like, Jesus is alive. But they're confused. They don't really know. And again, they have this idea of what's supposed to happen when you die. You die. And so when she says, Jesus is risen again, they're like, ah, what are you talking about, right? And then Peter runs to uh, to the tomb, discovers that Jesus is indeed not there, and the scripture says he's one, he leaves wondering what's happened. It's hard for me not to read that and chuckle thinking about my, my wife. Like when she kind of asks me to do something and says, hey, it's, it's in the drawer, like the, the second drawer down. Can you go get that for me? And I say, sure. And I walk out of the room and immediately forget what she said, right? And, I go, and I'm like, ah, where, where was that? And I walk back in. I'm like, where, where did you say that? Really? I just, I just told you, right? You kind of get that impression. Like the women tell them, Jesus is alive. He's, he's resurrected. He's, he's risen. 
And Peter runs, and he looks at the tomb, and it's empty, and he's like, ah, I wonder what happened, right? And you can almost imagine when he comes back, and he's like, you'll never guess what I found. He's not there. And the women are just like, yeah, wow, that's wild. Go figure. Who would have guessed, right? Um, obviously, I'm making some of that up. But that's the idea that you get here. I mean, these, what these women says has absolutely no, it has no weight, no value, because of their social standing. But that is, who, that, is, that is who bears witness to the resurrection, first and foremost. Those are, they are the first witnesses of this revolutionary news. And I think this is significant. The implications of this are significant for us for two reasons. One is this is part of why I and lots of people smarter than me, it's one of many reasons, that we feel like the reports of the resurrection are historically reliable. Yes, it's fantastic. It's crazy to think we are claiming that someone was killed and rose from the dead. I get it. That doesn't happen very often. But if, if Luke just wanted to make this up, then he would have recorded other more astute, socially acceptable witnesses reporting on this. If you were with us last week or if you're familiar with the story, we talked about last week how the last person who saw Jesus as the innocent one being crucified was a centurion, a Roman centurion, a, a kind of a commander of, of a Roman a battalion. Known, known far and wide across the empire to be people of strong character. Why not have the centurion figure it out? Why not have him come and report it? That would make much more sense if you're just trying to tell a good story. But it would seem like Luke is much more concerned with reporting what happened than simply proving a point. It was the women who first bore witness to the resurrection. But the second implication that I think is revolutionary for us is that we see how hope in the resurrection transforms people as we watch these, these women. Who go from marginalized in society to front and center in the thing that God is doing. From people who don't have a voice to the, the only voice speaking what's true. This is what happens with the resurrection. And it feels kind of upside down, but it also illustrates all that Jesus has been saying up until this point. If you're familiar at all with the teachings of Jesus, he was constantly talking about that in God's new world, in God's kingdom, in the thing that God is doing now and for eternity. If you think about that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, if you're familiar with that, where your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Here on earth and for all eternity, Jesus says, the last will be first and the first will be last. The greatest among you must be the servant of all. He's constantly flipping our understanding of how things ought to work on their head. Ultimately, the king of God's kingdom is inaugurated on a device of torture and death, the cross. Everything about how God's kingdom comes flips on its head our understanding of how you find life but we now see it begin to play out in the least among the disciples who become the foremost in declaring what has happened. These women, 
the resurrection inspired them to live different kind of lives. It compelled them to live lives that were about others, not about themselves, not about protecting their reputations or about playing it safe, but about doing the thing that others needed them to do in response to what God was doing in the world and in them. They believed that the resurrection wasn't just something that happened in Jesus, but that something that was happening in them. As uh, N.T. Wright, uh, New Testament scholar, says, the resurrection was the defining event of the new creation, the world that is being born with Jesus. This understanding of the resurrection, not just as a thing that happened, but as a thing that God was beginning to do in the world and in those who would come to put their hope in the resurrected one, transformed those early followers of Jesus from people who ran and hid to protect themselves to people who willingly laid down their lives as they bore witness of the event that happened on that day and that was happening in their lives. Most of the early followers of Jesus faced extreme persecution as they went out and they told others about the resurrected one, about the new world that God was creating in the world now and forever that they could be a part of. Of the original 12, 11 of them were, were killed, were martyred. This transformation that happened took place as they came to believe in the resurrection, not just as a one-time event, but as a, a one-time event that ushered in a continuing transformative act that God was doing in the world and in them. As uh, the New Testament author Paul would later say in his letter to the Corinthians, <clears throat> but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That the resurrection wasn't just something that happened it was the beginning of God's new world that began that moment and continues even now and will go on forever and that we get invited to be a part of. An event that displays how powerful the love of God is. That even death and darkness and sin and hate and violence cannot ex extinguish it. It's a love so powerful that it transforms weakness into strength, despair into hope, fear into courage, death into life. And when we celebrate the resurrection, not just remembering it as an event, but when we put our hope in the resurrected one, the hope of the resurrection transforms us. It turns our weakness into strength. It turns our despair into hope. It turns our fear into courage and it turns our death into life. The resurrection of Christ signified the, the defeat of darkness and evil and sin and death in the world and in us. And our hope in it encourages us, enlivens us, enables us to live with courage so that we can live in love. probably not heard of a guy named Michael Sharp. Um, if you have, it's only been recently and tragically. 
Michael grew up in a Mennonite community in the Midwest. Mennonites are kind of our cousins. If you look at the, uh, our family of churches, they're kind of connected out there. He was a bright and talented young man, had a bright future. He was also a person of deep faith. And so he decided to use his gifts, his skills, to work in areas that were experiencing extreme violence and turbulence and to work to bring peace. So for three years, he worked with the Mennonite Central Committee, which is a, kind of the, the service arm of the Mennonite Church. If you've ever been to the Mennonite Central Committee, their eastern offices are actually in Akron, Pennsylvania. We've done some things with them. Uh, they do a lot of different kind of uh, service things, um, but they're active all over the world. They're one of the foremost uh, organizations on the front lines of places that are uh, struggling with poverty and violence everywhere. And so Michael worked with them for three years in Congo. Congo is one of the most violent places on the planet. In Congo, he worked to, um, to bring peace and reconciliation between warring factions and between uh, those who were perpetrators of violence and those that they perpetrated violence against, the, the victims of the violence. He was pretty successful at this. In his three years with the Mennonite Central Committee, he convinced, along with some others he worked with, over 1,600 um, armed militants to lay down their weapons, to, to stop fighting. He was so good at this that he was hired by the United Nations Group of Experts in 2015, which is appointed by the UN Security Council. At 34, he was named the coordinator of the investigating panel, one of the youngest to ever hold that position. In March, he and a colleague, a woman from, I believe, Sweden, went to what's called the Kasai region in Congo to uh, kind of broker peace between some warring factions. On March 12th, when they were traveling on a, on a road on their motorcycles, they were kidnapped. For weeks, uh, they were, people were searching for them, trying to discover them, and eventually they found them both, their bodies, in a shallow grave. They were killed by those who they were trying to rescue, to invite out of the cycle of violence and into lives of peace. After learning of Michael's death, Fidel Lumiere, who's the head of the Congolese American Council for Peace and Development, said this about Michael. He said, Michael took a most perilous mission to investigate the ongoing killings, showing deep respect for the dignity of humankind and the women and children of Central Congo. His work in the Congo is a legacy of who we are as human beings, as Mennonites and Christian disciples. As you read again and again the reports about Michael's life, one thing that becomes very clear is that his faith drove him to live this kind of revolutionary existence, a life where he set aside the normal comforts and ease of Western life to work in some of the most violent places on earth to bring about peace because he believes that that's what God is doing. That when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he wasn't just using hyperbole, that he actually meant there's something about God's kingdom that brings peace. And those who are involved in that experience the blessing of being a part of what God is doing in the world. And so he gave his life for the sake of bringing peace because he actually believed 
in the resurrection because he believed his hope was firmly in a life that is greater than death, both now and forever. I love what one UN representative said about Michael. He said, he was courageous, but not reckless. He was courageous, but not reckless. And I think this courage is one of the primary fruits of our hope in the resurrection. That we become people who are suddenly emboldened to live different kinds of life because we believe that the resurrection is true. That our lives become motivated by a courageous love. The love that one of the disciples, John, would later refer to in his letter when he says, true love casts out fear. The hope in the resurrection causes us to live in love that is willing to step through fear. True love casts out fear. There's a writer that I follow on Facebook. I'm, I'm tempted to keep calling him my friend because we're friends on Facebook, but as you well know, we're not, doesn't mean we're friends. But um, I follow his writing on Facebook. He's actually in, uh, he's located in Lancaster. And he was recently talking about a decision that he made to travel to Iraq. So he and his family, a couple of years ago, um, with everything going on in the Middle East, um, just felt compelled to be praying for what was happening there, for the people who were there, um, for officials who were trying to figure out how to broker peace, how to work towards some kind of resolution. So they've been praying. And he's a writer, and so he's also been looking for writing gigs. And he found there was an organization that he really valued that was doing some work in Iraq that he contacted. They needed someone to do some writing for them. He contacted them. They were like, hey, yeah, we'd love to hire you. But would you be willing to come to Iraq to see what we're doing firsthand? So he called his wife. He said, hey, just want you to think about this, to pray about this. Um, here's this opportunity to work with this organization that we love. You'll never guess what they want me to do. And before he could finish, uh, her response on the phone was, they, they want you to go to Iraq, right? He's like, yeah. So don't make any decisions now. Just pray about it. I'll pray about it. We'll talk about it later. He gets home, goes to his, to his room, his wife kind of folding some laundry. And before he says anything, she, she goes, don't say a word. You need to go something we've been, we've been praying about. We've kind of known this was coming. You need to do it. And so he hasn't gone yet. He's, he's getting ready to go. But as he's been reflecting on this, thinking about this, he talks about how every day with his kids is more precious because being on the ground in Iraq is not just theoretically dangerous. It's actually dangerous. The question his wife asked him was, do they want to send you to the dangerous parts of Iraq or the really, really dangerous parts of Iraq? Right? Because there is no... There's not like a third option. And so he's been spending a little bit more time with his kids, thinking a little bit more strategically about how his time is being spent because he recognizes the fragility of it all. And he quoted something. He was in church a couple of weeks ago, and, and his priest said something that he jotted down and, and blogged about, and I was really struck by it. And it, it, it inspired him to keep moving forward in courage. His priest said this, he said, live a little more beautifully and dangerously, as Christians should. Live a little more beautifully and dangerously, as Christians should. 
hope in the resurrection should empower us, give us the courage to live lives of beauty and love, even if it's dangerous. Because true love casts out fear. Because in Christ, our hope is life is greater than death. Even if the worst happens, life defeats death. In Christ's death and resurrection, we have life now and forever. And so we, those of us who put our trust in the resurrected one, reflecting, celebrating on the resurrection this morning, should inspire us to live lives, not reckless lives. We're not talking about going skydiving or like bungee jumping or things like that. That's cool if you do that. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about being reckless or thrill-seeking, but living lives that are defined by beauty and courage, not fear, not self-protection, not self-centered, you know, circle the wagons, make life what's safe and easy and comfortable for me. But how do I join God in bringing beauty and life and goodness in the world? If we reflect on the resurrection, we can live lives of courage. We can live a little more beautifully and dangerously. Um, oh, I, the, the author's name was Sean Smucker. I told him I'd make sure I quoted him on that. Um, my hope for us as we reflect on the resurrection today is that as we grow in our hope and our trust in the resurrected one, that our lives would be marked by beauty and courage, not by fear. We're going to move into a time now where we take communion together. Communion is its a, a symbol, it's a the practice that Jesus passed on to his followers. It's a way that we reflect on Jesus' courageous act of love on the cross, where he lays his life down so that we can find life now and forever with him. While we do that, I would encourage you to do something else. You'll notice there are multicolored uh, Easter eggs under your seats, which I know the kids were really wondering about. Um, maybe you were, maybe not. I'm sorry I didn't put candy in them. I should have. That would have been much cooler. Um, and we've gone full-on cheese factor this morning. Like, I recognize this is super cheesy, but we're going to do it anyway. I think sometimes it's really helpful to have concrete ways that we acknowledge something that perhaps God might be doing in us. And so I want to invite you, as we take communion, as you spend some time in your chair, uh, to pick up the egg, open it. You'll find a small piece of paper. It's not very big. You can't write a book. But consider prayerfully if there might be some, some way that God is inviting you to step through fear and show self-giving love in your life as you reflect on the hope of the resurrection. It could be something as simple as you've been wanting to have the neighbors over for dinner for a long time because they're new and they're kind of on the, you know, they're not really in the, the inside circle, but you just don't feel like you have the time. But now you want to do that. You want to open your home and welcome them in. Or maybe it's something a little bit more significant. There's a, a friend or a loved one that you've been struggling to forgive, not wanting to forgive because you're afraid of being taken advantage of. Maybe you're feeling 
compelled by a particular, a, a particular organization that's doing really good work that you want to invest in, but you're, you're, just, you're hesitant to give generously because, well, you know, I kind of have to hold on to my money because you never know, right? Or maybe, maybe you're thinking about living more simply, getting rid of some of the, the excess that weighs you down so that you can be more free with your time and your resources. Maybe you're considering faith. You're someone who for a long time has kind of seen this as something, you know, that, that's for, that's for weak-minded people who believe in fairy tales. But more and more as you hear it, you're, you're being you're drawn by the person of Jesus. But it's kind of scary to think about becoming one of those people who might embrace faith. Whatever it is, I would invite you to consider stepping through fear as you reflect on the hope of the resurrection. That if the resurrection is true, it's not just something that happened. It's something that happened in us as we open ourselves up to the resurrected one to work, to transform us, even as he's transforming the world. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and then we're going to move into a time of communion together. Father, as we celebrate the resurrection today, we, we pray that you would help us to be rooted in um, the hope that comes in the resurrection. Hope not just that Jesus did conquer sin and death and darkness and evil and violence, but hope that Jesus does that in us as we put our trust in him that the violence in our hearts, the evil within us, the darkness that we often experience, that that stuff, that, that you can bring healing and hope and resurrection in us and empower us by your spirit to be people who live lives of courage, that we would live a little more beautifully and a little more dangerous in light of our hope in the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name.